no excuses. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and we met those people in verse 18 of chapter 1, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness do so willingly in the face of indisputable rational evidence and are therefore without excuse before God. One more time. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness do so willingly in the face of indisputable rational evidence and are therefore without excuse before God. Read along with me, Romans 1, and let's do verse 18 through 20 to get the full context. Paul, remember, is beginning the body of the letter. He's finished the introduction. Now he's beginning the body, demonstrating that all mankind needs a Savior. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Remember that we said that the that, that verb is revealed is a present tense revelation, is continuing to be revealed. In verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. People are guilty because they sin against the truth that they have, not the truth that they don't have. Condemnation in each case lies in the fact that men have sinned against the light that is received, not against the light that has never been received. Sometimes people say, well, what about people in Africa and people in Australia and in remote parts? What about the American Indians during times past? That, that never heard about Jesus Christ. Are they condemned to hell even though they never heard about Jesus Christ? Paul would say, without answering that question, uh, maybe the way that you want to have it answered, but, but Paul would say that men are not considered guilty because they sin against the truth that they don't have. They're, con- they're considered guilty because they sin against the truth that they do have. I'll unpack that a little bit. Thus Paul argues, though the Gentiles did not receive the full revelation in the law of the Old Testament like the Jews did. They did receive enough illumination to know what was right, but they embraced that which was wrong. So even though they didn't have the same revelation the Jew had, the revelation they did get, they rejected that. And that's the reason that they are condemned, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through twenty. If you'll allow me, I want to introduce the uh, an application for you at the very beginning of the sermon. I know a lot of times we give the sermon and then or the Bible study, and then we give you the application at the end. Tonight I'm going to kind of do that backwards. I want to give you the application in the beginning so that you can be thinking about it as we go through the principles of the passage. This is this is how I see the application to Romans one eighteen through twenty. All people of normal intellect observe God's creation and come to the conclusion that God exists. Now that may be a profound statement for, for many, but so let me make it again and I want you to consider it carefully. All people of normal intellect observe God's creation 
and come to the conclusion that God exists. I didn't say they would continue to hold to that conclusion. And I didn't say that they'd necessarily hold it for very long. It could just be a couple of seconds, and then they start to willfully suppress that because they say, no, I don't want any part of that. So even though all people come to the conclusion that God exists when they observe God's creation, some people very quickly suppress this truth in unrighteousness, like holding a beach ball underneath the water. They know it, but they refuse to believe it. They are in rebellion then against their own intellect, their own conscience, their heart, and deep down inside what they know to be true. Can you imagine what's going on in the soul of someone who says, I'm an atheist? Because you, you know good and well, this is the application of this, by the way, you know good and well that deep down in their soul, they know that there's a God. And they're having to willfully suppress the knowledge of that truth. So when you're witnessing, I want you to keep this in mind. Someone may say, well, I'm an atheist, but when they're saying that, I want you to know deep down in their soul, they're really not. Deep down in their soul, they know that there's a God. This passage tells us that if the Bible is true in John 3.16, if we can believe that, we've got to believe this too. And we'll unpack it. So when witnessing... You don't have to be intimidated. This holds true for the so-called average man, if there is such a thing, but it also holds true for the philosophy professor. You don't have to be intimidated. Deep down, you've already won. What you're trying to do is to get them to let the beach ball up. If they let it up, that's their business. If they don't, that's their business. But that's the purpose of apologetics, in my view. Last year, we held a series of workshops on the subject of Christian apologetics. We call it the Defending the Faith series. And remember, I'll just review quickly. I'm not, it's not my intention to go through the whole thing. Is it cool enough in here, y'all? Well, why don't we go ahead and turn that off for a minute? We may need it back on. But Let me, let me remind you, because it's been a few months. First, the cosmological argument said, basically, if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. Remember that? Then we talked about the teleological argument that said if the universe had a design, then it must have had a designer. And finally, the moral argument said if there's a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. All three arguments have been proven very strong throughout the centuries. My personal favorite is the moral argument. I think it's one of the strongest arguments, but that's only my personal preference, probably because it penetrates the heart. And I think that's where the real problem lies in most cases. Not in the intellect, but it lies in the heart. There is a moral argument then for the existence of God. If there's a moral law, if there's a moral law, there must be a moral law given. Now this is not a new line of argumentation. It's very old. Thomas Aquinas wrote of this kind of natural moral law hundreds of years ago. C.S. Lewis who was the champion of this line of reasoning in the 20th century. His work, The Abolition of Man, is one of the least known of his works, but one of his most powerful. Lewis died in 1963, November 22nd. Does that day ring a bell? Ought to. That's the day Kennedy, got, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. C.S. Lewis died in England at almost the same time that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated over here. But even though Lewis died in 1963, as is God's custom, he raised up others to take his place. And in our generation, we have one of the finest minds that I have ever had a conversation with. Not that I know him personally, but I at least got to speak with him. 
working on the moral argument. And that's Jay Buzicheski, who's a professor at the University of Texas, a professor of government, natural law, and philosophy, a brilliant man. He's the author of a couple books, uh, two of my favorites, well, many books, but uh, two of my favorites are What We Can't Not Know. And another one is The Revenge of the Conscience. And Budzhevsky writes that those who reject God deny no less than five witnesses that he has graciously given to his creatures. If you're going to reject God, you've denied no less than at least these five witnesses. One is the creation itself. We find that from this passage. Second, you've got to deny human design. Not just the design of nature, but human design. By the title of his book, Revenge of the Conscious, you might, you might be able to figure out. He also believes that you've got to deny your own conscience in order to deny that there's a God. You have to deny the natural consequences of bad decisions. And finally, Buczyszewski claims that you will deny the Godward longings that God has put into your soul. Creation itself, human design, conscience, natural consequences of bad decisions, and the Godward longings that Christ has put into your soul. In his book, Things We Can't Not Know, and by the way, I, I would highly recommend that book. Budzisewski, by the way, is spelled B-U-D-Z-I-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I. You definitely will win a spelling bee on that, that one, but it's pronounced Budzisewski. B-U-D-Z-I-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I, J. Budzisewski. In his book, Things We Can't Not Know, he, he explains part of what he has to say this way. However rude it may be these days to say so, there are some moral truths that we all really know, truths which a normal human being is unable not to know. They are a universal possession, an emblem of the rational mind, an heirloom of the family of man. That doesn't mean that we know them with unfailing perfect clarity or that we have reasoned out their remotest applications. We don't, and we haven't. Nor does it mean that we never pretend not to know them, even though we do, or that we never lose our nerve when told they aren't true. We do, and we do. It doesn't even mean that we are born knowing them that we never get mixed up about them, or that we assent to them just as readily as with whether they are taught to us or not. That can't even be said of 2 plus 2 is 4. Yet our common moral knowledge is as real as arithmetic, and probably just as plain. Paradoxically, maddingly, we appeal to it even to justify wrongdoing. And I love this last phrase. Rationalization is the homage paid to sin paid by sin to a guilty conscience. Rationalization is the homage paid by sin to a guilty conscience. Budzhevsky is absolutely right. There are things that we can't not know. They, they are first principles. They are self-evident. We don't even have to try to, to prove them. And in order to reject God, you've got to go through those things, and you've got to reject those first. Those who reject what they know to be true... In essence, calling what is good, bad, what is right, wrong, what is false, or what is true, false, open themselves up to severe psychological trauma, resulting in the forced suppression of truth 
and the substitution of something else for that truth. And we'll see that in this passage. Those who reject the clear evidence of nature that God exists, and the passage tells us that they know God exists because God makes them know that he exists, they suffer severe psychological trauma, resulting in a forced suppression and then substitution of something else. You may refuse to worship the infinite personal God of the universe. That's your choice. But you will worship something. You may refuse to place God at the center of your life, but something will occupy the center. Mankind is hopelessly religious. He will worship something. If not God, then something that God has created. And if not that, man will worship himself. The further one goes down the road of suppressing the truth that God exists, the more psychological trauma that soul endures, and the stranger their behavior comes, and the more rationalization they give about the behavior that they engage in. Even today, from World Net Daily, the title of this article is Sharon Osborne, I Wish I Had a Gay Child. Celebrities enthuse over same-sex marriage, boo Bush at awards event. I'm not going to read the whole thing, and I'll take out some of the political parts. But I, will, I just want you to get the flavor of how far down the road you can go when you have the psychological trauma to the soul that results from willfully suppressing the knowledge of the truth. You wonder why people get this way. It's because they have gone a long time in suppression of truth in their soul. That's why they get this way. Now, I'm not saying everybody that suppresses the truth goes this way. But they're going to go some way toward an irrational thought pattern. Let me just read you a couple sentences. The audience of a Hollywood awards show, and this is dated today, the audience of a Hollywood awards show demonstrated their opinion of President Bush when booze rang out in the hall each time his name was mentioned during the ceremony. Filling the Kodak Theater with sounds of disapproval turned into a game among the participants of the 15th annual GLAD, G-L-A-D-D, awards on Saturday. The ceremony is sponsored by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Many of the celebrities in attendance relished the chance to slam Bush on the issue of the day for the homosexual movement, same-sex marriage. Skipping down, Sharon Osborne, wife of rocker Ozzy, elicited hearty applause when she declared, quote, My only regret in life is that none of my children are gay. Performer Alanis Morissette told the paper recently that, that she was ordained as a licensed minister via, via online course and said, quote, My fantasy would be now to marry some of my gay couple friends. Antonio Banderas, and by the way, you've bought Atlantis, some of you have bought Alanis Morissette's music. You go to Antonio Banderas' movies, you're supplying the money for these people. And I'm saying that you know, as a blanket statement. Listen to what they have to say. Actor Antonio Banderas, who has portrayed many homosexual characters, was honored with the Vanguard Award for, quote, promoting equal rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, end quote. He attended the ceremony with his wife, actress Melanie Griffith. This is his quote, I'm going to be tonight very strongly on the side of those who are fighting for a legal frame in which they can develop their relationship normally in their lives, Banderas said in accepting the award. In other words, this is his quote, gay marriage, yes, please, absolutely Yes. That's about all I can stand to read of that. But I think you get the point. That's what happens. And the reason I brought that particular sinful pattern up is that that's the pattern 
that Paul is going to bring up and that he will himself use in this same passage. There are other ways you can go. That just happens to be the example that the Scriptures give. And we wonder sometimes, why would people go that far into degeneracy? Well, it's because of the psychological trauma. I want you to, I want you to understand that. People who are in this state of suppressing the truth for long enough, I'm talking about the truth that God exists, that, that one simple truth, their souls can't handle it, and they will be psychologically, emotionally, as well as spiritually disturbed. That's why we see the degeneration that we see. It's because we've got minds that aren't thinking rationally. And again, there are other ways that people can go. I don't want to imply that that's the only way, and if you've avoided that, then, then people have avoided that kind of irrational thought pattern. It can happen um, in many different ways. But, you know, when you, when you discuss these issues, it can be somebody that is a brilliant person. At the end of the day, their responses to you are not brilliant. You just scratch your head and say, how could a smart person answer that question that way? It's because of the psychological trauma that they have endured. Now, a few things about the, a few details, if you will, about the verses themselves. Again, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Don't get so um, uh, boiled down into the details of the upper part of the passage that you miss that last phrase. That's the point. That's Paul's point. They are without excuse. Nobody can go to God and shake their fist and say, If I would have had more information then maybe, uh, maybe I wouldn't have made the decision that I made. And that's what some very famous atheists have done. They said, well, well what would happen if you got to heaven and you found out that God did exist? And they said, I would, I would challenge him that he didn't give me enough information. No, you do have enough. You got enough right now to believe that God exists. Now, back to our witnessing thing. This is a problem that you've got to filter through sometimes with people in our culture today before you're going to get to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody denies the existence of God, to start the discussion with believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is starting it at the wrong point. You've got to start wherever they are. And I know there's some disagreement about that. Some people say just plow right through that and go to the believe on the Lord Jesus Christ issue because that's the crux of the gospel. But that's not a biblical model. In the biblical model, Paul started where they were. We learned that in our Defending the Faith class. These verses, verses 19 and 20, begin a discussion of what is called natural revelation. Natural revelation describes what everybody knows about God because of what God has revealed concerning himself in nature, hence the term natural revelation. What he has revealed about himself in Scripture is termed special revelation. And there's also one other form of special revelation that's not available to us uh, per se we have the written information about it and that's when jesus christ was here on earth personally he revealed the father to mankind but the two aspects that we have available to us today are natural and special special being the written revelation of god the creation bears testimony to its maker and every human being hears this witness we learn this not only from this passage but also from psalm 19. Even Napoleon, 
And I go back and forth on whether we can make Napoleon a believer or not. I, I, I wish he would be, just like I wish everybody else would be. But Napoleon said this, at least he believed in God. Napoleon on a warship in the Mediterranean on a starlit night passed a group of his officers who were mocking at the idea of a god. He stopped and sweeping his hand toward the stars said, Gentlemen, you must get rid of these first. Smart comment. You've got to do something with creation before you can get rid of God. This passage tells us that four things characterize natural revelation, the, the revelation that we have in nature. First, it's a clear testimony. Everyone is aware of it. Second, everyone can understand it. Everyone can understand it. First, it's clear and everyone's aware of it. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. It's clear. It's crystal clear within them. Second, everyone can understand it. Now, again, I'm talking about, when I say everyone here, I'm talking about everyone of a, that has a normal or, or even semi-normal intellect. To, to use my own family example, my little sister Cindy doesn't have a normal intellect. Never has, never will. She doesn't come under this category of the everyone that I'm talking about here. So young children, people before the age of accountability, don't come under this category of everyone that I'm speaking about here. So I hope you, since I don't have to say that every time we go through this passage tonight, we're, we're taking those people out and setting them aside as a special group. We're talking about everyone of a normal or at least approaching normal intellect here. So everyone can understand it. We draw conclusions about the Creator from his creation. Third, it has gone out since the creation of the world in every generation. Don't let that one slip by you. It's gone out since the creation of the world in every generation. Fourth, it is a limited revelation in that it does not reveal everything about God. You don't learn anything about the love of God in the creation of God. You don't learn anything about the grace of God in the creation of God. In fact, if all you had was creation, and since creation has fallen, I mean, all you got to do is watch Mutual of Omaha when they're doing one of those shows where the lion is attacking this helpless gazelle and ripping it to pieces, and you would see anything but love there, wouldn't you? I mean, you, you wouldn't. So natural revelation tells us enough about God to know that there is a God. But it certainly doesn't tell us enough about God to know how to be rightly related to him. That's where Jesus Christ came in and the written word of God. And in, the, in past times, the prophets and those who spoke before God. So it's a limited revelation in that it does not reveal everything about God, but only some things like his power and the fact that he is God. Because in order to do these things, you couldn't just be a very um, superhuman you can be Superman or Batman or Spider-Man and get these things done. It takes somebody that's way beyond that. And that was the problem with Plato and his Greek gods. They were never big enough to do what he needed them to do. And it always bothered him. Natural revelation makes man responsible to respond to his creator in worship and submission. However, it does not give sufficient information for him to experience salvation. That's why everyone needs to hear the gospel. A person can't go up to Colorado and, and stand up on the top of one of the Mount Evans and look out over the valleys and say, boy, there is a God. 
I need to be rightly related to him, and I need to trust his son, Jesus Christ. Not just from that revelation. Now, if somebody's told him ahead of time, then that's a different story. But what natural revelation does, according to Paul in this passage, and that's what I'm interested in, it makes us responsible to respond to the Creator in submission and worship. Everybody doesn't do that. Some people say no. There is a God. I know it. It's deep down in my soul. They may never admit it to you, but they know that there's a God, and they say, no, I will not submit to that deity. And what they're really saying is that I am the captain of my own ship. I chart my own course. I'll bow down to no one. Well, that's going to work for a while, but in heaven, every knee's going to bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 19 begins with a, a little Greek particle, D-O-T, which means literally on this account, and could be understood, as the New American Standard has it, because, or even as some translations have it, since. But I like because better because it's explaining what's going on in verse 18. Because that which is known is evident. Phaneros, which is the word that is um, translated evident, means pertaining to being, get this, clearly and easily able to be known. That's why I said that a person has to have normal intellect, or at least an intellect that is approaching normal, because it's clearly and easily able to be known. It's been translated in the Bible variously, clearly known, easily known, evident, plain, and clear. But you get the point, I hope, that this is it's not rocket science. Uh, to bring it down on most of our levels, it's not algebra. <laughs> you know, This is... <laughs> This is something that's easy for the normal intellect to understand. You see it, and you can understand it. The phrase says, they know that which is known about him. They know, this includes all those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Everyone knows. Deep down inside, they know. So their problem is not essentially one of the intellect. It's not like, well, if they had a, an IQ of 20, 30 points higher, they'd get it. No, all of us know people that have better intellects than we do, that don't get it. In fact, sometimes the problem is the arrogance. They look down upon us and say, well, if you were as smart as me, you wouldn't need that. Bit of a condescending remark, wouldn't you think? But what if, what if I could say that I know somebody smarter than you, and they do believe it? That kind of wipes out their argument. Their problem, not so much is of the intellect, their problem is one of the will. It's one of the heart. It's a hardness of heart. People choose not to believe that which is clearly and easily able to be known. I don't say this to be mean to these folks. I don't say it to give them a hard time. I would, I would say it to challenge them. I don't know if there's anybody here. I doubt anybody here tonight on a Wednesday night that wouldn't believe in the existence of God. But all of you know people, uh, if, if you're out in the community at all, all of you know people. So we're not trying to be mean to them. We're, we're trying to use this information to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us so that we're not afraid to talk to them. That's my application, remember? I want you to know that deep down inside, they know. And they know because God made it evident to them. The knowledge of the fact that God exists comes as a gracious gift from God. God made it evident. God performs the action of this verb which, by the way, is the verbal form of that Greek word phaneros that we just discussed. So, because that which is known about God is evident, it's 
clearly and easily able to be understood. For God made it evident to them. And the specific member of the Godhead would be the Holy Spirit. God made it evident to everyone who has a relatively normal intellect because God desires that all men be saved. There's not a category of people out there that God says, I'm not going to allow you to understand this. If you're guilty before God, you're guilty because of what you decided. You decided to reject him. This knowledge is part of what theologians call common grace. Now, common grace is more than this. We'll have to talk about it at another time. But it includes this. In chapter 1, verse 20, the four introducing this verse shows that Paul continues the close chain of reasoning about the knowledge of God that he begins in verse 19. For since the creation of the world, every generation from Adam on has had this revelation. They have had the revelation of his individual attributes, which are namely his power and his divine nature. His power and his divine nature. Once again, there's nothing about love in the information we get from creation. There's nothing about grace through faith. That took special revelation. So you can't just leave someone. We can't just say we don't need to do missions because they've got enough information to, to understand there's a God or not. All that does is, is either get them condemned or get them to a position where they say, yes, there is a God, and I want to know more about it. And then it's God's responsibility to get that more about him to them. And God is powerful enough to do that. And if there's ever a case, I don't know if there ever has been, but somebody's going to ask, so I'm going to answer it now in the best way that I can. If there ever was a case in some deep, dark jungle where a person said, yes, I want to know God. Yes, there is a God. I want to bow down and worship him. But the gospel information about Jesus Christ never got to them. It's my view, and I want to tell you, this is, this is my view alone. Certainly not every evangelical theologian would, would go along with this. But it's my view, if that was to theoretically ever happen, I see no reason why God can't apply the finished work of Christ on the cross to their life, because nobody gets to heaven except through Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're going to get through but just in the same way, we can make the case that the mentally retarded and the child, because they never had a chance, gets to heaven. We could make the case that if there was such a thing, and I'm not going to admit that there was, okay, because God is powerful enough to take care of it. It could be that those that never um, that are out there in that situation, um, every single one of them said, no, that's a theoretical possibility. We're, we're speaking in terms of theory here, so I don't want to die for it or have a fight with you about it. But I'm saying the principle, it'd be very difficult for you to argue against the idea that the child who never had an opportunity to go to heaven because they didn't have the intellect could go. But one who did bow down in worship before the revelation that they had but never got the gospel could not. Because God desires all men to be saved. Either he's going to get the gospel to them. And by the way, that's very orthodox. Or, in my view... He is going to apply the finished work of Christ to them. Having said that, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that that has ever even happened. I don't know. But that's the way I would view the fairness of God. Now, is this saying people can get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ? No, I didn't say that. 
They still had to go through Jesus Christ, but just like my sister, they would have the finished work of Christ applied to them. Now, that's not the doctrinal statement of our church. It's, if you want to disagree with that, feel free. Even if you're on the board and you want to disagree with that, feel free. It's not going to affect anything one way or another. But that's my answer to the question that at least a half dozen of you are already thinking. At least you should have been if you're not too tired already. Just a couple more things, and then we will uh, we'll let you go get a nap. God is powerful and possesses the properties. By the way, listen, I, I am fully aware, because I've sat where you are hundreds, if not thousands of times. You, you got up early this morning. You worked all day. You've had, many of you have had extremely stressful days. But yet still, instead of going home and going to bed, you willfully chose to come in and listen to a Bible study tonight. If you're tired, I don't know that you have to bow your head and confess that. You know, I've done it sometimes. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so tired. <laughs> hey, that's the way it is sometimes. So um, I, know it's, I know it is a struggle on Wednesday nights, but I, I, I so appreciate you being here. I took a nap this afternoon, <laughs> at, least, at least for 30 minutes. You know, so that's why I had the energy to So, but... Uh, I guess I shouldn't say that, but it was a very short nap. I promise. You. That's what that chair is. Quickly, God is powerful and possesses the properties normally associated with deity. Natural revelation does not tell us everything there is to know about God. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God in order to rightly be related to Him. That's a given. Now, there's an interesting play on words here. These properties of God that cannot be seen, the scripture says, says, are seen. Did you catch that? In verse 24, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. What is something that's invisible? What's the definition of that? You can't see it. But read, read more. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. You catch that? It's a wonderful literary device that the Apostle Paul is using. It's an example of a device called an oxymoron in which a rhetorical effect is achieved by asserting something that's apparently contradictory. God, in his essence, in his essence is hidden from human sight, yet much of him and much about him can be seen through the things he's made. You see? Paul is thinking primarily of the world as the product of God's creation, though acts of God in history may also be included. He's thinking of the creation itself, but that's not where it stops. Acts of God in history also demonstrate that there is indeed a God. And I would go even further than that and say, the believer, you and me, have an opportunity to demonstrate to a lost and dying world that there is indeed a God. By living as though we really truly believe it. Or, we can come to church on Sunday morning... Sunday evening and Wednesday night and act like we believe it here and then go out into that lost and dying world and act as though we don't believe a thing that we say we believe. And if that's the case, why should someone else believe us? Because people watch who you are. They listen to the words that you say about other things before they're ever going to give you a hearing on what you say about something so important as their eternal life. Francis of Assisi said, uh, tell everyone, you know, when you go out into the world, tell, give a testimony to everyone about Jesus Christ. 
And sometimes you even need to use words. You catch it? They watch who you are first. Now, I'm not saying that that's where it stops, but that's certainly where it starts. So Paul is thinking primarily of the world, but he also is including the acts of God in history and also you as an act of God in history. And this I understood by Paul's use of the preposition apo, sometimes translated from, but here it's translated in a temporal sense, not with the meaning of source. And for since the creation of the world, it's temporal, not from the creation of the world. If it was, some of your Bibles may translate it from. If it does, then it narrows it down to only the mountain and the ocean and the flower and those, uh, those kind of things. And I think it's a little bit more than that. Man can observe what God made and what God has done in history. So, bottom line, they're without excuse. The way the Greek is structured in this final phrase indicates that it's, it's God's purpose that's being worked out. He designed this thing so that people would be without excuse. True, the result is that they're without excuse, and, and it could be understood that way in the English, but, but it's also God's purpose that they be without excuse. So we'll end up where we begin by stating the, the summary message statement of these verses. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness do so willingly in the face of indisputable rational evidence and therefore are without excuse before God. Heavenly Father, we stand humbled. We don't stand arrogantly before you tonight. We, we come before you in the state of humility that you were willing to do this for us and that you were willing to make yourself known to every human being. We thank you that the Holy Spirit motivated us to accept this and also to go further and, and, and to trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. So, Father, may we look at this as though we've been saved from the flame on the one hand, but may it also motivate us to understand that everyone has this truth and may we not be intimidated no matter who it is we desire to speak with. May we, may we be just like the Apostle Paul and be bold in our presentation of the gospel to those who so far have rejected it. But Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us a special grace in this in the days to come. And now, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.